Hello there, and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane. In our series on marriage, we have talked about marriage prep, and we've talked about life as a newlywed, but we haven't directly tackled wedding planning. Because for a lot of people, it can be an extremely stressful endeavor, which is why they turn to people like today's guest, Catherine Boisel. Catherine, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Catherine is a Catholic wedding planner. And how did you get your start in the business? Yeah, so I'm a graduate of DeSales University, studied dance and marriage and family studies, actually. Um, Moved to D.C., after that. And I started working in events alongside a floral design company, actually. So that was kind of dipping my toes in the waters. Started working for a wedding planner after that. So I was in the wedding industry in the DC area for about two to three years before switching over to the nonprofit world, which was great experience. And then decided to start my own business specifically in the Catholic realm of wedding planning. Cool. And how do you help guide couples to not hyper-focus on the wedding event? Because this is something we talked about before. There can be so much preparation bound up with the day and less bound up with the sacrament. But how do you help engaged couples remember the sacrament and the marriage that they're preparing for? I would say first and foremost, that's why you would hire a wedding planner to kind of come in alongside you, step in and take over kind of all of the detailed aspects of wedding planning. But really, I try to allow couples to then focus on their preparation for marriage, for the sacrament, for this lifelong commitment, obviously, that they're about to embark on. So yeah, that's just one way I can kind of, in our meetings with one another, I'm taking care of the details. I'm asking the questions and getting the information I need. And then once we're not in meetings with one another, they're able to focus really on the preparation for marriage itself. But also I think this is something that is kind of missing in the DC wedding industry in particular right now. It's so much focus on the day and really, you know, the few hours of the party and whatnot. So I do try to remind couples to take a deep breath, relax, and really enjoy that time of engagement, enjoy the planning, make it fun, you know, have date nights where you talk about the menu tastings or the decor that you're going to bring in and make it part of that dating and engagement period. The kind of couples that come to you, do they tend to be the more detail oriented? Like they come to you because they really care about this stuff and they want it to reflect their vision or are they more the kind of people that they are just grateful to have it off their plate? Catherine, you deal with it. We'll see on the day. You know, that's an interesting question. I have found, I mean, I've only um, been doing this on my own for just about a year now, but I found that I've had both couples, both types of clients come to me. So couples that are super detail oriented. I have one April bride actually coming up who was an event planner herself. So she was like, you know, I'm, I get this. I just need you really for coordination to make sure everything is running smoothly on site day of. She's also, they're a Catholic couple. Um, and then I have another Catholic couple also getting married in April who are kind of more of a hands-off. They're like, we need a detailed list. We need a checklist. We need you to keep track of this. So yeah, definitely both ends of the spectrum. And I love working with both types of personalities. <laughs> okay. Now you got married yourself during the pandemic, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. 2020. <laughs> Our uh, previous guest, Alessandro, same thing for him. Yeah. So did that change the way that you approach other couples when they're planning their weddings now? Yeah, it kind of sparked my interest in getting back into the wedding industry. Honestly, I just remembered how many details and how many kind of 
personalized decisions you can make and planning your own wedding, everything from your nuptial mass booklet that you're sharing with your friends and family to follow along the songs that you're choosing, the readings that you're selecting to including bits and pieces of your story and how you guys met in the decisions that you make at the reception. I know my husband and I actually met on Coffee Meets Bagel, if you're familiar with uh, that app. (laughs) Yeah, no, I have another married couple of friends. They met there too, yeah. Okay, yeah, I have a few. So I highly recommend it. Um, But we kind of included that in our little like favors um, for guests after the reception. We had bagels from a local place that we like, and then coffee beans, you know, from a local coffee roastery. So it just reminded me how unique your day can be and kind of to incorporate those details, but also to, I think, make decisions that are good for you guys. You don't have to please everybody. I remember one time I was talking to a friend of mine, we were getting overly granular about the mass booklet specifically. And like, (laughs) how how much should we explain what the glory is to people? This is our like, one. this is your one chance to talk about it in in a church setting and take advantage of your of your pulpit here. Yeah, exactly. I don't think that's what it was for. But we were definitely tempted to really go crazy (laughs) with the booklet. Yeah, well, my husband actually converted prior to us getting married. So half of the folks at our wedding weren't Catholic. And so we actually kind of did use it as an opportunity to evangelize and kind of educate about the parts of the mass. So it was a pretty lengthy mass program there. (laughs) And I think again, like, If you are, you know, marrying someone who either isn't Catholic or you have a lot of guests that aren't going to be Catholic and attending, that is an opportunity to evangelize and reach over and kind of bridge that gap. So we actually also included just a number of like praise and worship hymns throughout the mass, just to make it a little bit more accessible. I know music can be so moving for folks. So that was, again, one small way that we tried to, yeah, just make it more accessible and comfortable for the folks that might not be used to sitting through an hour and. 15 minute, an hour and a half long mass. (laughs) Okay. Speaking to the wider wedding industry, would you say that their handling of Catholic weddings specifically, that they leave space for the sacrament, that they respect what's happening on the day, or is it just kind of one component in the machine? That's a great question. I of course don't want to speak for everyone out there. Um, Every, you know, planner is going to be different, but Again, in the DC wedding industry specifically, I do feel like that's missing. I feel like so much of this industry is all about the party aspect. Mm. And for most folks, it's a five hour ordeal. You know, their ceremony starts at five o'clock and then it's over by 10. So there's a lot of focus on how big, how grand, how can we impress everybody and not a ton of focus on how can we make this sacred? So, you know, there are little things that, planners like to, you know, planners, photographers, videographers like to do, you know, having a first look is one of those. So you'll have planners and photographers say, oh, well, you know, have a first look that we can, we can get all the photos done with before the ceremony, et cetera. And not to say a first look is wrong or whatever. You can be Catholic and have a first look, but I, I would say most of my Catholic couples do save that for walking down the aisle. So I, of course, you know, like to work with couples. Yeah. Let's save that moment. And you guys can have a special moment then. And we can, fit the photos in after the fact and kind of curate your day in a way that makes sense for you guys. If you want a moment of prayer beforehand, we can leave time for that. Yeah. There's lots of different ways. And especially in this go, go, go environment where we want to squeeze everything in, do everything big, putting together a timeline sometimes can 
kind of, yeah, neglect like the sacrament aspect and not give couples the time and the space that they might need. If you did have to speak a little more loosely, what is one thing that you really do have beef with when it comes to the wedding industry as far as you've experienced it? It's hard to justify spending as much as folks spend. Again, it's probably in this area specifically. I know if you get married in Leesburg, Florida, where I'm originally from, like people don't spend that much on weddings, but I feel like it's spending floral budgets are anywhere from a lot of floral companies in this area have $10,000 minimums. So anywhere from 10,000 to literally a hundred thousand dollars on flowers, which don't get me wrong. Like I love flowers. I would, you know, have fresh flowers on a daily basis if I could, but that's a ton of money to spend on something that again, it's going to be taken away. You're enjoying it for five hours. It's going to be taken away at the end of the night. No one's going to see it again. And no one's going to remember the flowers that you had on your wedding day. (laughs) $10,000 minimum. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. <laughs> I've heard of the expenses before, but I've never heard of the minimums. That's so yeah. close. Jeez. Okay. It, it can get Ooh. crazy out there. <laughs> so in the shoes of an engaged couple, let's take a hypothetical engaged couple. Mm-hmm. They're Catholic. They don't really know much about this. Obviously, they've never done it before or never really been around somebody who've done it before and kind of witnessed it secondhand. What should they be looking for in a wedding planner? I think first and foremost, having a conversation, I, I feel like it's it's good always to quote unquote interview a few different people just to see who you, who you drive with, who you're comfortable with. Because this person, your wedding planner is going to be with you obviously in the months leading up to your wedding day, but also be with you pretty much all day on your wedding day. (laughs) So you want to, you want to pick someone that you get along with. That's going to be, you know, have a great attitude and make you feel less stressed. And then also, you know, obviously someone who again, understands the sacrament, understands where you guys are coming from and what's important to you and not always trying to push their agenda or what, you know, might be important to them. Obviously being a wedding planner an event planner myself, I, would recommend looking for someone who's experienced (laughs) and obviously detail oriented, able to think quick on their feet and adapt to change because nothing goes as planned. (laughs) As much as we plan, nothing goes as planned. (laughs) Let's say you want to have a faithful Catholic wedding, not -hmm. just mass, but you want the day to reflect that. Mm -hmm. Do you think the wedding planner has to be Catholic in that case? No, I don't think so. Yeah. I I don't think necessarily. I think obviously it helps or it can help, you know, it can help with those creative ideas. I had a bride and groom um, who got married in December and all of their table numbers were named after different saints that meant, you know, something to them and their relationship. So it can help in the respect that, you know, I knew what their table numbers were in the saints and they actually wanted the DJ to say out loud the saints names when they're calling them to the buffet, they were like really adamant about that. And so (laughs) I was able to help, you know, if the DJ had any issues with pronunciation or anything like that, obviously it helps being Catholic to know those types of things, but no, not necessarily. I think as long as you, you know, if you happen to hire a wedding planner who isn't Catholic or doesn't share your faith, just making that clear upfront to them again, like what is important to you. I like that idea of you're at a wedding banquet you're calling saints to go up and get food. Yeah. It's like you're you're like weaseling your way, not weaseling your way, in, but you're wor- <laughs> you're working your way into like the heavenly wedding banquet. Yeah, you're calling on everyone. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's so funny. I've been to a lot of weddings, heard of a lot more weddings online. And it seems like you're always hearing about some new creative thing that people are doing with their wedding. Like, Yeah, options are endless. <laughs> if you're getting a PhD, you always have to contribute something new to whatever field you're getting a PhD in. Yeah. And yet people still keep getting PhDs. They keep adding to right. the field of knowledge. Yeah. So I asked our marriage catechumenic guest, Richard, about this. And I asked our newlywed guest, Alessandra, about this, but I want to get your take. So what is one thing that people often spend a lot of time or a lot of money planning that they don't necessarily need to worry about? Yeah. So I listened to one of those podcast episodes. I didn't <laughs> listen to the other. <laughs> so I don't know the newlyweds answer, but you know, as I already touched on this, I think I would say kind of like the florals, the decor stuff, that's where you can really scale back. I always say to my couples, select a venue that has kind of the ambiance and the atmosphere already there. So you're not having to bring in, you know, linens, flatware, glassware, et cetera. You kind of like their vibe already. There's a lot of venues that are just like blank canvases, which is a bummer. Cause then it's like, okay, you have to bring in tables, chair, like everything you have to bring in and kind of transform the space yeah. versus picking a venue that kind of has that built in and that character there. I would kind of disagree with uh, your your other guest on the food. Oh, I, I think mean, Richard maybe, said food. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's being like kind of a foodie in this area, but I remember the food from the wedding that I've been to. And I, I don't know. I always like to remind my guests too. Yes. It's about the sacrament you're in the marriage, but the reception is you're hosting an event. You're hosting a dinner for your guests. So think, try to think about the things that they would really enjoy. Um, you know, that could include an open bar. If your guests would really enjoy that, <laughs> um, it can include the steak, maybe a great band or DJ, but things that I think your guests aren't really going to remember are things like the decor, the types of linens that you use, the flowers. Okay. That's an interesting point. I was thinking about those barns or farmhouses that have been repurposed specifically as event spaces yeah, where they're not blank canvases. They've been set up with this in mind sure. and that way you don't have to worry about that kind of thing, but right. sprucing it up or whatever. Yeah, exactly. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Cause I guess, yeah, you must get nickel and dimed into oblivion without that. Yeah. Uh, restaurants honestly are a good, a good option. I recommend going there because they have, again, like all of that stuff in house. You're not having to bring in a bunch of that stuff. So lots of options. Okay. Well, is there anything you want to leave our audience with Catherine? Yeah. Just again, try to take a deep breath, relax, enjoy this period of anticipation, waiting, engagement, and look forward to that big day. Again, you can plan, plan, plan. Things will go as they go. And and what's important in the end is, is the sacrament and preparing for that lifelong commitment to one another. That's awesome. And where can people find you online? Yeah, Um is my website. I also have a Facebook page and Instagram. So you can find me there and I'd love to uh, get in touch. Awesome. And we'll have uh, links to all those in the show notes as well. Great. Cool. Well, Catherine, thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, fine. We're going to talk about Bruno. Let's do it. <laughs> Kara, thanks for coming back and bringing Vivi along with you, where we are here to talk about Encanto. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. I keep hearing about Bruno, so I was like, I need to find out why we're not supposed to talk about Bruno. Yeah, the fact that we keep hearing about Bruno makes me think that nobody really watched the movie. <laughs> As if they hadn't heard that song 10 times, which we're not going to play because it's it's extremely catchy. It is extremely catchy. Lin-Manuel Miranda definitely knows what he's doing. 
Encanto is a 2021 movie by Disney, directed by Jared Bush and Byron Howard, and it centers on a magical family in Colombia in the decades following the Thousand Days War, which took place at the beginning of the 20th century. So they don't come out and say it, but this takes place approximately the early to middle 20th century and centers on the Madrigal family. And to the movie's credit, they don't quite bleach out Catholicism from Columbia's culture. You see uh, you see a priest and a very fleeting sacrament of matrimony at one point. The one question I did have at the end of the movie, the one character is like putting sand around and the priest is like giving him a thumbs up. And my husband and I were debating, we're like, is he laying a foundation or is he superstitiously putting sand around? And the priest is like, yeah, man. Yeah, so I, I do have some problems with the priest's endorsement of apparent superstition. Because he buys Bruno's prophecy that he's going to go bald at one point in the middle of the movie. And then in the end, when they're rebuilding the house that gets destroyed, there is like a salt circle. I think it's salt. Because it looks a little visually different than the sand in like Bruno's lair. But I, I'm not sure. There's a slim... Are you trying to make us... A... <laughs> I'm just trying to not... I'm trying to with like be restrained about this. There's a slim chance that it's blessed sacramental salt. Unless it's that, this priest has some problems. <laughs> I had that same thought too. I was like, either this is being extremely good or it's being pretty bad. <laughs> right. So ambiguous because Disney doesn't want to get in trouble with anybody. They want to, you know, represent the culture, but they don't want to be too religious, just like we've, you know, talked about in previous movies too. You know, for me, I, I think this movie was a bit of a mixed bag. But Kara, what'd you think? I actually kind of liked it. I um, One thing I do think was helpful to know, my husband actually is a Spanish major in college. And he pointed out that he's like, I wonder if this is meant to be sort of a nod to Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who is Colombia's probably most famous author. But also he's sort of the father of magical realism and that sort of mixing of like real world events, but there's some kind of enchantment. It's like that's extremely common in like his style of writing. So I don't know, maybe it maybe it's a subtle nod, but at the very least, it seems like it's kind of like keeping in a certain tradition of storytelling for the culture. Apparently, the butterflies are meant to be a reference to that, or at least potentially. You know, neither of us are the most well-read, so I don't we, we haven't read 100 Years of Solitude. But uh, there's a guy uh, who is constantly swarmed by yellow butterflies. And there's a yellow butterfly in this movie that marks uh, like a particular event that is predicted at one point in the plot. So I think that's meant to be an intentional nod. But I think other than that, I generally enjoyed it. I think, you know, there are, we'll probably mention this. Of course, it gives you some Coco vibes. Um, and we've talked about Coco on this pod before. Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna try to, you know, we recognize that Mexico and Colombia are separate countries with their own cultures. So we're gonna try <laughs> and dial it back on the comparisons. But there are still definitely some comparisons to be made. Well, I mean, I think the fact that they're both very much about the role of family and what relationship we allow our families to have in our lives and kind of, you know, what place of precedence they take. And also there's a mysteriously missing grandfather in both of them. So, you know, in the old Disney movies, it used to be that like no mothers were around. Everybody was like a semi-orphan. And then now we've got uh, a bunch of missing grandfathers. So I was like, oh, this feels... But but, I had to remind myself, like, that's a Pixar movie. 
this is Disney, but it felt very much like they were kind of cribbing on a lot of Coco. Disney animation and Pixar are definitely comparing notes here, because I also had, uh, in the similarities with Coco, a raggedy guy who's estranged from the family, who you meet somewhere in the middle of the movie, and a clash with the abuela, who is very strong-headed and eventually re-examines her ways. So those are the two the two other big similarities with Coco that jumped out to me. Different from Coco is the main plot of the movie in which this family was fleeing really civil strife during the Thousand Days War. The husband and wife have infant triplets and the husband protecting the family is killed in the civil strife and ambiguously some sort of miracle befalls the wife and the three babies where they are protected in this what they call Encanto is this kind of village setting that is walled in by these mountains that sprout up and protect them from the military elements and when the babies get a little bit older they each get gifts and their kids also get gifts so that most of the members of this family with the exception of the original wife who is now the abuela they each have a magical power so one she can control the weather but the weather also reflects her mood one has super hearing one can heal you with food One's super strong, one's perfect and can make flowers sprout up forever. One can talk to animals. Am I missing any? One transforms into uh, other people. Oh, that's right. The shapeshifter kid. Yeah. And then the main character in the movie, Mirabelle, is the only other member of the family who doesn't apparently have a gift. She's ordinary. You know, to her mother's credit, her mother is all the way through the movie extremely supportive. You know, we love you for you. Basically, the mother has already seen the movie and has learned the lesson. (laughs) Whereas the grandmother has not. The reason the grandmother is so focused on everybody using their gift to serve the family and serve the community and be perfect is she wants to make sure they have a safe home because she lost her home and she never wants to go through that again because she has this kind of this trauma, this kind of core wound that is guiding her actions and her relationships, which I thought the movie did very well. I agree. Ultimately, it took me a little bit. It took a it was like a little bit of a slow roll. To realize that really the movie is about the grandma and Mirabelle. I mean, there'd be like my one sort of qualm with the narrative is that there's sort of like this big first act and then the second act is, oh, actually, the movie is about something slightly different. Yeah. So, you know, the first half of it is really Mirabelle coming to terms with the fact that like she wants to contribute to the family and she feels as though because she doesn't have a gift, she can't contribute. And so there's... The whole journey for her of realizing that she does have a part to play in the family. In a way, it's sort of also, I don't know. I, this is maybe another qualm I have with the movie. It, rather than them saying that, like, you don't need a gift to contribute, there is basically like, well, you have this, like, major role because it was, like, <laughs> premonitioned that you're the one who's going to, like, break the family apart. But I think it, I mean, it speaks to the the desire that like everybody wants to be special and like have something special about them. So I'll put aside my my issues with it. I feel like the strengths of the movie is at the like the second half of the movie, which is really about the grandmother vis-a-vis Mirabelle and you know, sorry, yeah. the abuela, sort of her journey in a much more truncated space of the movie. The pressure that Mirabelle deals with, it stems from this kind of directive that the grandmother gives to everybody in the family. Make your family proud. Which sounds great, but one thing the movie 
does particularly well is it shows some of the issues that can arise with that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought that they really nicely show, I mean, through the Louisa character, who's basically, you know, somebody who kind of is overworked and has a million things people want her to do because she's super strong. And, you know, there's the whole song about like, you know, I cry too, and I'm so stressed out, and I'm losing my powers. And I mean, I feel it feels very like of the moment, but I think it's also very true of feeling the burden of a gift to the person's own detriment. Yeah, at one point she says in that song, like, I'm worthless if I can't be of service. And, you know, it's interesting. In the marketing for this movie, it was like, hey, everyone in this family has superpowers. Look at this super strong lady. Isn't she empowering? Which, you know, I think is partly true. Women aren't all, like, weak and frail. Like, they can be strong too. Okay, fine. But that's not really the point of Louise's character in the actual story. The point of her character is that there's a problem with the whole macho power narrative and it's a problem when it's applied to men or applied to women power is made perfect in weakness and not in how much use you can be i mean i think it's also instructive for you know christians where we can feel the call to service and this kind of sense that you know god wants us to do things this is you know the old faith and works arguments where i think that can be very tempting to think that you've got to be doing things all the time or like do service when God gives us talents, yes, to serve him, but also like that's not where our worth comes from. Right. There are saints of great power and saints who struggle with alcoholism, like, and they're both extremely close to God. Yeah. And so this tension is kind of introduced in the opening song where Mirabelle's talking about all the family members and you're kind of getting the rundown. One point it kind of jumped out to me that didn't quite sound right she said there was like so many grandkids or something like that relax there's there's six of you (laughs) this is supposed to be a big catholic family both jason and i were extremely confused by the opening narrative i was like i have no idea who these characters are it took me further into the movie to sort it all out it's a lot for a single two-hour movie but it's not a lot for a family like i'm one of six grandkids and we're not a big family (laughs) no no i have like 30 something on one side yeah i have one uncle and aunt who have 10 kids so That number is far too low. Anyway. (laughs) Okay, here's a question. Was the gift system designed specifically to turn these people against each other? Hmm. Because that's how it felt to me. Say more. Why why is this so contentious? Why can't we just be happy for others' gifts? (laughs) Good bread? It just seems like the way it's assigned where you're given this gift when you're still a kid and it determines so much of the rest of your life. And like, okay. If you're in the 50s in Colombia, you probably had to grow up pretty quick. But these are not psychologically Colombian 50s kids. They are they're contemporary minded kids. Yeah. Where foisting a life path on them by virtue of this gift is very premature. And the fact that you introduce this very sudden inequality on them that makes them either a competitive or b you assume that they have to use their gift, right? Like with Louisa. Louisa, anytime, you know, anything heavy needs to be moved, you got to be right here. So I don't think anyone's competing with her, but they're definitely using her. I I push back on it because, I mean, well, first of all, I mean, there are lots of, you know, saints who had a call very early in life. You know, this is St. Therese of Lisieux goes into the convent at like, you know, age 14. And I I mean, I think about people who have, you know, fantastic sports skills 
putting aside the whole problem of over competitive American sports culture for children, you know, they think that there is something to be said for people have natural gifts and we should be nurturing them. I think that the movie is meant to point out to you the risk of overly identifying with your gifts and kind of the, I mean, the problem of work. And I know this is, again, this is Pixar. This is not Disney, but I know I've heard interviews with Pete Docter, who's one of the main directors of several Pixar movies. I think he was the director of Soul. Yeah. And he was talking about that. I mean, we we did a pod on Soul. You can hear our thoughts all about that one. It was interesting in his his interview was talking about the fact that now that he's kind of in his 40s and realizing that he spent all of this time and energy on his career and kind of feeling like, is this really what makes me me? And I think it's that very human struggle of identity and like if you allow work or, you know, your talent to overly identify who you are, there are problems with that, no matter, you know, how God-given those gifts are. Uh, that's episode 61, by the way, if you want to go back and check out our episode on Soul. Yes, I agree. The way it's set up here, how could you not over-identify with your gift? Sure, yeah. That's my, not a beef with the movie, it's a beef with the system that is set up in the story. As like, are we sure gifts are even a good thing at all? The way they, they've done it in this movie. Well, I guess that's what I mean by the fact that like the grandma's narrative comes a little late in the game. Because yeah. that is her, that's like her journey at the end is basically she did over identify with these gifts. And I mean, she had a really charitable impulse that they have been given gifts. And so they need to use those gifts, you know, to better the world yeah. and their community. But it becomes less of an act of charity and more of this directive yeah, and right. almost burden as opposed to a free gift. Yeah, it's like the family has become this like collectivist compulsory force on each individual, which I, I think is a, is a kind of a cool dynamic that they've set up as a harmful thing. I think part of the trouble with this being a Disney movie and having a musical element is you can get the impression that if they're singing about a thing in an entertaining way, then they must be celebrating it, which they're not actually doing. Like these songs are loaded with ironies and little hints that, you know, there are cracks in the foundation as there will literally be cracks in this house's foundation as a result of the problems in this family, which they don't want to acknowledge. But you can easily get the impression that, oh, hey, look, isn't it wonderful to, you know, be able to talk to animals? I will say I'm a little confused about how Isabel, like, making flowers is supposed to be, like, the end all be all. But, I mean, obviously, <laughs> truth, good, and beauty. It's all, like, beauty is is a very important thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I think what you said about sports families is particularly, this movie, I think, is maybe almost intentionally commenting on, like, Families where the kids are really athletic, except for maybe one, or families where the kids are all wicked smart, except for maybe one. They're all like musical geniuses. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I think the movie cares a lot about that um, and, does a, and does a pretty good job of showing the challenges of living in that kind of family or the potential drawbacks. As far as that goes, I think the movie's helpful for you know showing people how to relate to family members. Especially living in a multi-generational household. It was a little bit of a surprise that suddenly like it takes this turn and it's kind of about the abuela. Yeah. But in a contrast, I think, to a lot of Disney movies, it's not about the youthful character. It's kind of like being more poignantly about adults. Yeah. I think this movie is a little bit more overtly 
the adults have a lot to work on and need to be corrected and the kids are right. Whereas saying Coco, I think it was more 50, 50, like both sides were a little bit right and a little bit wrong and they just need to come together and acknowledge where each of them, you know, need to make some concessions and, you know, need to realize where the other one is right. The Bruno stuff in the middle. Now we're actually literally going to talk about Bruno. I thought the movie was going to be more about that than it actually was, where Bruno is separated from the family, but he's still secretly living in the house still. It's just that the house is really big on the inside and you can hide in it easily. But they didn't actually kick him out. Like when he's reunited with the abuela at the end, his mother, she immediately hugs him and it sort of feels very prodigal son, the father embracing the son kind of thing because he left she didn't kick him out and she missed him but he left because of you know certain problems that the abuela was the source of namely his gift having visions of the future wasn't helping the family the way the grandmother wanted so she kind of wanted him to take a step back and he did it's a little eccentric (laughs) yeah now i have my big beef with the movie And then you can tell me whether or not there's anything to it. Okay. Okay. So in the end, the family's fallen apart and been put back together. They're rebuilding the house. And Mirabelle has done the lion's share of the work in terms of reuniting people and saving the family. They're about to finish putting the house back together. And they give Mirabelle the doorknob with the M on it, which could either be M for Madrigal, the family's name, or Mirabelle, her own personal name. You know, she's looking at the doorknob and the grandmother asks her, what do you see? There's been this running theme of, you know, open your eyes. What do you see throughout the movie? And so the grandmother asks Mirabelle, what do you see? And Mirabelle says, like very tearily, this is supposed to be like the touching moment at the end of the movie, me. The point, which I think makes sense for Mirabelle's character arc, right? Like she hasn't been really recognized and respected as an equal member of this family, except by her mother. But outside of that. And maybe her father. But outside of that, the other members of the family don't really value her, you know, as much because their problem has been to, you know, equate use with value. And she didn't have any use, so they thought she didn't have any value. Finally, at the end of the movie, not only do they see her and love her, but she is able to gain like a proper sense of self-worth because of the journey that she's been on. And to an extent, this is right, because society exists for the good of the individual. And we we don't want to subject Mirabelle to some kind of collectivism. However, it makes it seem like the individual also just exists for the sake of the individual. Like the point of Mirabelle going through all this to reunite her family was so that she could have a sense of self-worth. As if that's like the end of all of this. Insofar as the movie gives that impression... And that self-worth isn't just a necessary thing that you need in order to be a loving, happy person. I think that's a problem because it means that the reason Mirabelle saved the family was just for her own sake and not really for their sakes in themselves as ends in themselves. And it's this sort of individualism that's something that like our culture has done a really good job of marketing so that whatever product you want to sell, whether it's a can of soda or a car or a phone, which in the phone's case, it reflects our image similar to the doorknob reflecting Mirabelle's image back at her. It becomes like a symbolic act of proclaiming the self as supremely valuable. Unless we in, we could interpret the doorknob moment as meaning that like her identity is serving her family as like an integral part of it, which she does in her interactions with them. Like she helps them sort out their own issue. But if that's her whole identity, then I think she would just wind up having the same problem as Louisa, her stronger sister, who ends up feeling like she's worthless if she can't be of service. 
So I don't think it's that. I don't think her identity is serving the family. I think it's meant to be the prior thing, the individualism. My problem with the gift system is related to this, because I don't think the movie has an idea of what this is all for. You and I, Kara, we would say, well, this is all for love of God and love of neighbor. That's what family life is pointing towards. And that escapes the like individual versus the collective tension. But the movie can't explicitly recognize God, which is why the source of the whole gift system has to be ambiguous. Like there are a couple times when characters are imploring for help from whatever unseen force is causing the, the miracle, but it's never really explained. Whereas in Coco, I think it's different. In Coco, it's not this extraordinary thing that happens. Coco is just, that's the way the world works. There's the land of the dead and it happens to everybody. It's just part of what that world is like. It doesn't really need to be explained in the same way. Whereas here, the miracle doesn't happen to everybody. The miracle doesn't happen to anybody else. It only happens to this family. It's not, quote unquote, natural the way the land of the dead is, quote unquote, natural in Coco. So I think it begs for an explanation a little bit more. And the fact that they can't quite say what caused it speaks to this movie's inability to really get to what this is all about. You know, we did Coco, we did Soul, where those movies also couldn't say what the real afterlife was like. It seems like Disney and or Pixar keep bumping up against the ceiling because they have really lofty ambitions when it comes to the themes of these movies, but they're not able to say what the thing is, namely God. I mean, I in terms of the story, like her kind of take on the ending, it felt maybe a little trite to me. So I guess I didn't like it didn't immediately hit me as quite so much about individualism, just because so much so much of this story has been about, you know, I want to be part of the family. And it's so important to be part of the family. I think it'd be different if she in some ways, Coco had a stronger like, I need to fulfill my dreams and my individual gifts far more so than here. This is definitely like a, a heavy emphasis on the gifts being at the service of the family. But I think you're right that a lot of these movies where, I mean, the three that you named in particular are really skirting around the issue of like, well, what's the bigger point? And I think both Coco and and Kanto put this heavy emphasis on family, which feels a little bit like, okay, it's a bit cultural. Like both those cultures have very, you know, strong sort of familial cultures but at the same time it does seem to be missing because at the end of the day both of them have this kind of mixed point about family where it's like family is great but your family should also be like respectful of who you are and your individual gifts i just think that it's it's impossible for any of these to like get at the real reason but that's going to be true i think for like anybody who tries to scratch at the surface of i want to point at something deeper but i don't want to like name the source of the deeper I don't know, it feels a little bit like you're waiting for the punchline and it can never come. Yeah, right, because the, like, the punchline is in a language that you're not allowed to hear or something. Yeah. Okay, no, that that's a good point. Yeah, I'm glad you compared it to Coco, because Mirabelle doesn't have any separate ambitions, you know, apart from the family. Like, she, she wants to live here and, you know, be with these people. So I guess she's not really individualistic in that sense. Um, so that's fair. Yeah. You're pointing out a real tension though so there there is this kind of tension at all times of we have an individual personal relationship with christ and there are times when that will put us at odds with those who don't put that relationship in the primacy and therefore these other goods that we know exist are subordinated in a way to like our personal salvation not that we make it happen but that we can't put any other 
person above that. Right. I can't say that it's, well, you know, for the good of my family, I'm going to sin. Like, well, right. no, that's that's fundamentally like the wrong way to be viewing your relationship with God. You know, the idea of being like, well, my because my family is so important, like rupturing my relationship with God is is okay. It's like, no, that's that's the wrong priority. Like, we know that's wrong. Even though we know that family is extremely important and like the sort of earthly source of understanding our relationship with God. So then there's always a little bit of a you know, tension of goods that unless you've got like a real eye on the source and summit of of the, the, the purpose is always going to like create tension. Yeah. Whereas here, there's no goal like that, which I guess it's not individualism that, that Mirabelle arrives at. I think it's just identity, right? You can, you can have an identity and still be with these people and be part of a whole family. But I think what she gains at the end is that sense of identity. I agree. In some ways, I think this movie is, I don't want to call it countercultural, but it is different in that I think a lot of movies start more with Coco's idea where it's like, I have this strong identity that I need other people to be validating. Yeah. Whereas this movie, interestingly, like your identity is given to you. And perhaps there's an overemphasis on that identity, but it's still a good thing to have a sense of identity. You know, as Christians, we would say that the most important identity is knowing you're a son or daughter of God. But in this case, her sort of being purposeless because she didn't get a gift in this family just to now feel whole is a good thing. Yeah. And they, they've already illustrated that it's like that can be taken to an extreme in the wrong direction. So that's kind of what I liked about it. It's like, oh, it okay. actually is less about you know, affirm me and my identity and more like having a healthy sense of identity and that that identity can be also like very much rightly attracted towards a greater good, i.e. the family. I just don't want it to end there. That's all. I just don't want it to terminate like, mm. okay, you you know, you have this healthy sense of identity and because of that, you'll live happily ever after. Sure. Yeah. It feels like a trite note to end on. Like, I I struggle to come up with a better suggestion of what they should have done. But um, I hear you. It feels a little like, is that really the takeaway? I think you're making a good point. That's you're, you're the voice of moderation here. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I would like to continue to enjoy watching Disney movies. So I'm going to find the silver lining. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that will do it for Encanto. Kara, do you have anything to add? This movie made me really want to go salsa dancing. <laughs> and by the way, I'm not a good dancer, so that's really saying something. Well, that will do it for us. Kara uh, and Vivi, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. If you want to help this podcast grow, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends, and be sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you so much for your support. It really means a lot to us. Bye now, and God love you.